experts of Common Sense Investing have been helping their clients and listeners make sense of the markets for nearly three decades. Using a conservative, diversified, value-oriented approach to investing, they strive to make you a better educated, well-informed investor. And now here's your host, Eric Whiteman. Well, thank you and welcome to this edition of Common Sense Investing. I'm your host, Eric Whiteman. So glad you could join me today. You know, over this past weekend, Berkshire Hathaway, that symbol BRK, we buy the B share, so it's BRKB. Berkshire Hathaway released their fourth quarter earnings, which were pretty darn good. And along with it, Warren Buffett's annual letter to shareholders. And that's my focus today. I think Warren Buffett's annual letter is a must read. It's a must read if you're investing your own money, even if you don't own Berkshire shares. Most of you are going to read it by downloading it from Berkshire's website. And the first thing you're going to see once you get it downloaded, the very first page are the returns. It's simple. It's straightforward, something everyone can understand. It's a one pager that lists all the returns since the the business began back in 1965, year by year for the last 56 years. And what's really cool is that they list the S&P 500 numbers right alongside theirs. Last year, Berkshire was up 29.6%. That's 29.6% versus 28.7% for the S&P 500, and that includes dividends. So Berkshire came out ahead by about 1% if we're rounding. And it's been a couple of years since Berkshire has beaten the S&P. But over time, there's nothing like Berkshire Hathaway. I own it. I buy it for my clients. It's, it's like everything I talk about here on this show. If I'm talking about it, assume that I already own it. I'm not trying to fool anyone here. But looking back over the past 56 years that it's been around, Berkshire has a compounded annual gain of just over 20%. That's per year, 20% per year. Line that up next to the S&P 500, it returned 10.5% per year. You don't have to be good in math to know that 20% is a whole lot better than 10%. And then when you add in time, 20% compounding over 56 years, the end result is, well, versus the 30,209 for the S&P 500. Again, you don't have to be a math wizard to know that 3.6 million percent is a whole lot better than 30,000 percent. How did they, that's Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger, how did they do it? How did they how did they double the return of the S&P 500 over that period of time? Well, they tell you in simple terms at the outset of the letter. They own businesses based off their expectations of what they think the business will do over the long term. And not because they view them as vehicles for timely market movers. In other words, they're investing for the long term, not speculating or trying to time the market. And that's what I would suggest to you. I think the way that you build wealth is over the long term, buying high quality businesses, 
when you think that they're selling at fair prices, not by trading or, or looking for the pop, the next big thing. Right now, Berkshire is holding on to about $144 billion in cash, $144 billion. And most of that's in short-term U.S. treasuries. And he's told us before that he'd like to have a cash cushion of somewhere around $30 billion. So that tells you he has a lot more cash than what he wants, about $110 billion more. And that tells you a lot about what he thinks about the market at this point in time. There are three options or three ways that he can increase the value of Berkshire stock. And that's what you want if you're an owner. The first is by investing in the companies that they already own and increasing their long-term earnings power. I'm talking about the wholly owned businesses here. The thing is, is that those opportunities really aren't big enough for them. Even though they might be great investments, well, they just don't move the needle in the long term. Well, the next option, if you can't own off the whole business, then maybe you can own a portion of a business. In other words, stocks. Again, he doesn't find a whole lot that excites him at the moment. And it's a problem that a lot of investors are facing, especially value investors who don't like to pay o- overpay for things. In his opinion, which it's kind of hard to argue with, Low interest rates have pushed the prices of all productive investments higher, be it stocks, real estate, whatever. To put this in perspective, at present, the S&P 500 trades for about 18.8 times forward earnings. And that's right on top of the five-year average of 18.6 times. And it's well above the 10-year average of 16.7. So even after this early year pullback, stocks still aren't inexpensive on a historical basis. Yes, you and I may be able to find some bargains, but Berkshire has a lot of money to put to work and it's a lot more difficult for them to do it than for us. And I talk about Berkshire's returns over the last 50 years, but the reality is, I talked about how great their returns are over the last 50 years. The reality is, is they're going to have a much more difficult time growing like they have in the past simply because of the law of large numbers. Hey, I'd be happy if they averaged a 7% a year return going forward, especially because I consider them, I consider them lower down the risk scale compared to your average stock. I'd also be surprised if they returned on average more than 10% a year, happily surprised at that. So what's the last option? Invest in yourself. When a company buys back its own stock, they're increasing the shareholder's share of ownership in the company. For example, when Berkshire buys back its own shares, they're increasing your share of ownership in Apple because Berkshire owns Apple as well as all the other businesses they own. During the past two years, Berkshire has spent almost $52 billion buying back about 9% of their shares. So those of you who have owned Berkshire during the past two years, you now own 10% more of all their businesses, whether they're wholly owned businesses like Geico or Burlington Northern Santa Fe or the publicly traded ones like Apple, Coca-Cola, Uh, American Express, and so on. There's a caveat 
caveat here, though, the price has to be right. That's a mistake I see a lot of companies make. When the good times are good or when times are good and the money is rolling in, their stock's hitting all-time highs, the company goes out and announces a buyback just because it sounds good and they think their investors will love it. But problem is, is that their stock may be overvalued. When you overpay, you're actually destroying value. You're not creating it. So it only makes sense when you think that your stock is undervalued. Buffett said in the letter that his appetite for this is huge, but it's always going to be price dependent. He also noted that Berkshire's buyback opportunities are somewhat limited because of what he calls its high class investor base. You know, people who buy Berkshire, they usually buy it and hold on to it. They're not. Typically, uh, typically trading in and out of the stock. If the stock was held by short-term speculators, the traders, well, life would certainly be easier for them because both the price volatility and the transaction volume would increase, and that would create greater opportunities for creating value by repurchasing shares. Does it make sense for them to buy back their own stock now? Well, I mentioned that Berkshire has spent around $52 billion over the last couple of years buying back stock. During January and February, he spent another $1.2 billion on share repurchases. For many years, he said that he'd only buy back the stock if it traded around 1.2 times book value. And then a few years ago, they raised it to about 1.3 times book value. That's about where I figure it's trading at now. Hence, his share read purchases. He's not using my number. He's using his own, of course. But figuring out the book value has actually been getting trickier and trickier every year because the wholly owned businesses, well, they're carried at cost, not at what they're worth now. And I'm willing to wager that Geico Insurance is worth a whole lot more now than what they bought it for in 1995. A better way, I think, is to figure out its intrinsic value for, for Berkshire. And that's a whole lot of work. So for the sake of this discussion, we're just going to stick to book value. He also goes on and talks about what he calls the big four or the four giants, excuse me, the heavyweights of Berkshire. First, it's the insurance operations. And I want to spend a couple of minutes on this one because it's really the lifeblood of Berkshire Hathaway. And I think it's important to understand. Berkshire has a bunch of different insurance companies, but let me use Geico for my example to make my point here. Geico sells car insurance. By the way, if you're a Berkshire shareholder, you get a discount. But anyway, Geico sells car insurance. Think about this. You write a check. You send it off to them and then you go get in your car and you drive around and you're trying desperately not to have an accident. If you're successful, and I hope you are, they keep your money. Now, if five years down the road, you do have a fender bender, well, they'll pay for it. But in the meantime, they've had your money for five years, five years of free use of your money. That's what they call the float. Warren Buffett takes the float and he invests in companies that make more money and so on and so on. So far, 
that float has had a zero cost to Berkshire. And you do that by writing policies that are somewhat profitable. They aren't like they aren't looking to make a bundle from the underwriting of insurance. And it frankly, it'd be very difficult to do anyway, because the insurance business is competitive. People mostly shop on price. But you do want to make sure that it's profitable over time. There are going to be years where you're going to lose money. Say there's a flood or a hurricane and a bunch of cars get destroyed. It happens. It's part of the business. But you do want to make sure that you're taking reasonable risk. There are times that I've seen other companies lowering their standards and underwriting policies that, frankly, they shouldn't, that they know that are going to be unprofitable. And they do that just so they can increase the amount of their float because the market's doing really well and they want to invest it. That's a game I wouldn't want to play because they're counting on the investment returns to offset the policy losses. Overall, Berkshire's earned a modest profit from their overriding over the last 55 years, but that float has increased substantially. I just love the insurance business. It's not going away. It's not going to become obsolete. I don't know what you're going to be driving or, or flying 20 years from now, but I'm pretty darn confident you're going to have insurance on it. And people typically don't change insurance companies. So that float is what I would call sticky and pretty stable. It's just a great business when it's done right. The other giants Warren Buffett talks about are Apple, Burlington, Northern Santa Fe, and Berkshire Hathaway Energy, which I think is a pretty interesting story in and of itself. But I've run out of time for today. I suggest you read the letter, especially if you're investing on your own. It doesn't take that much time. I'll be back in a couple of weeks. But until then, remember, it's just as important to protect your assets as it is to grow them. I'm Eric Whiteman, and this has been Common Sense Investing. show now it's time for the really good stuff so listen up it's the disclosures the things i talk about during the show well they're just my opinion and are not necessarily those of the xml financial group i typically own and trade the securities i'm discussing both personally and for my clients but not all of them likewise employees of xml and our affiliate broker dealer may be trading and providing advice regarding the securities I mentioned to their clients as well. Don't construe this as personalized advice or a solicitation to buy or sell a security. No, you should consult your own financial advisor to see if it's appropriate for you. It's also not a substitute for tax or legal advice. I suggest you get someone who's qualified in those areas so you can get the advice you deserve. When you're talking about asset allocation, diversification, rebalancing, they don't guarantee better results and they don't eliminate the risk of losses. In investing, there are no guarantees. Just because you use these strategies doesn't mean you'll outperform someone or something who doesn't. 
I like to make projections and other forward-looking statements, which are just that, opinions, and are not actual results and are only valid as of the date of this recording. Things change constantly. XML Financial LLC is an independent registered investment advisor.